It is good to see a few more faces, uh, 3D, uh, this morning. And so uh, I'm glad that you are here. And if you are uh, not here, <laughs> then I just want you to know you're missed. And it would be easy because that sentiment is said often to not capture uh, the heart behind it. Uh, you genuinely are missed. And we long for the day when uh, we can gather back together again as a church family. I regularly reflect on how good God has been to me in and through the different churches that he's allowed me to be a part of. And the foremost would be this church family. This church family has been a source of massive encouragement and joy to me. I love being gathered with with you, with Covenant Life Church, as often as I can. Uh, Sundays are my favorite days of the week, in large part because of the joy that comes whenever we see one another. And that doesn't mean that I don't see church family outside of Sundays, but there's something particularly sweet about coming together. And I know that many within our church share that same sentiment that their church family is a source of unwavering joy and encouragement. And yet I'm also aware that perhaps there are some in our church family. I know that there are many across the universal church, even today, churches in our state, in our city, in our country, in the world, where churches are not a reminder of God's grace, that they're a reminder of painful experiences, that there are reminders of deep sorrows and, and hurts. And I'm not sure that for those that there is much of a desire to regularly be with their church family. And while I'm unaware of how covenant life has been that way to some, I'm sure that along the way we've unintentionally brought about hurts where we didn't mean to. And yet here's the truth. The truth is, is that we are more fragile as a church family than we realize. And we're more susceptible to becoming a church that causes hurt and harm and pain as opposed to encouragement and joy than perhaps we want to even admit. How is this so? Not because I know of some uh, divisiveness that's taken place or some some factions that are forming. No, but because of what James tells us in James chapter three. In our passage this morning, James lets us know that that which produces disorder and division and destruction among the people of God is a wisdom that many people buy into without understanding just how unwise that wisdom is. And so I want to be clear there is a warning in our passage this morning. The passage is penetrating. You see, what James will do this morning is he will hold up certain sinful attitudes that we may see as a little bit respectable. It's not as bad as other attitudes. And James wants to hold those certain attitudes up, and he wants to call them demonic. And as such, they are a threat to the peace and to the well-being and to the ability to live God-honoring lives among the people of God. 
But James won't leave us in the pool of this is what wisdom is not. He will also allow us to take a, a swim in the beautiful waters of what biblical true wisdom is. And so as our hearts this morning are exposed to the word, as our hearts this morning are wounded by the word, I pray this morning that our hearts would be healed by the word. And so I want to pray that for us as we get started. So join with me. Our mighty, loving, loving, heavenly Father, we come to you on the basis of the work of your Son. We're held near to you by the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that this morning you would give us discernment and the ability to be honest with ourselves and that your word would teach us and instruct us, perhaps even using the, the scalpel of truth, would you so cut the boils of sin in our heart so that there would be healing on the other side. Our need is great, and we confess this morning that our God is greater. And so meet us, teach us, don't allow us to walk away the same, we pray. And for that to happen, would you allow everything in this service, particularly now this sermon, May the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. And we pray this for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 3. The passage that you heard read, James chapter 3. 3 will be the larger number for the chapters, verses 13 through 18. Those are going to be the smaller numbers under that large heading of 3. James is writing to scattered Christians who are being mistreated for their faith. And many have said that James' letter is essentially a summary of what true Christianity is. What does it mean to be a true Christian? How do you know someone has genuine faith? And James centers in on three traits that distinguish true Christians from others. We see this outlined in James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. James talks about what true Christianity looks like and how it's distinguishable from a false Christianity, a Christianity that's merely professed and not lived out. And James says, you'll be able to tell true faith by a controlled tongue, by a care for the vulnerable, for the needy, and by a refusal to conform to prevailing worldliness. I believe Charlie last week in his sermon mentioned speech, character, and actions. And so that brings us to our passage this morning. James is wanting to address the topic of wisdom. He quickly shifts to a new topic that perhaps doesn't seem to be as closely related to the sermon that we heard last week, the section that we heard last week, verses 1 through 12, where James is speaking about the power, the disproportionate power that's found in this member of our body known as the tongue. And yet, when we stop to consider how these two are related, perhaps they're more closely related than we, than we thought or even realized. The speech symptoms of verses 1 through 12 in James chapter 3 is the result 
the product of the wisdom roots in verses 13 through 18. The speech symptoms in verses 1 through 12 is the product, are the products of the wisdom roots of verses 13 through 18. And so this morning, let, let us allow James to pastor us as we consider the topic wisdom according to God. Three points to help guide us through the text this morning. The first one is this. Wisdom is revealed by how we live, not merely by what we know. Wisdom is revealed by how we live, not merely by what we know. We see this in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. James, as he's done throughout this letter thus far, he begins this section with a question that's relying on an answer that's intended to make his point crystal clear. And the point is this. Biblically speaking, Wisdom is seen. Wisdom is visible. That's the point James is wanting to make. Wisdom is visible. Wisdom begins with knowing God. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, in first century the Greek culture that James was writing among held wisdom up as this virtue that was par excellence. I mean, you were a rock star if you were wise. And wisdom in their day for the Greeks had everything to do with rhetoric, had everything to do with uh, learning, with skill of speech. If you were to flip and read any of Paul's letters, particularly his first letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians what you would find is over and over Paul addressing this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. So where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul's confronting their notions of wisdom. The things that they consider to be wise, Paul wants to call out. If you look down and again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Beginning in verse 26, for consider your calling, speaking to these Christians, this church in Corinth. Were there not many wise according to the flesh? Or there, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of this world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And so even Paul making, making a distinction between this worldly wisdom and a wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul was aware of God's value system. 
and wisdom and understanding were evident in how the godly were to live. And that's the truth that James wants us to understand. That biblical wisdom is not merely about knowledge. It's not about all that you know. Though to be clear, you cannot be wise without knowledge. Biblical wisdom goes beyond knowledge. And it goes into the realm of applying what you know, living what you know. Wisdom is knowledge obeyed and knowledge applied. And what James is saying is, show me your life, and I can tell you whether or not you are truly wise. You see, it's possible to have the highest grades in the class. It's possible to have graduated from the finest of institutions. It's possible to have the grayest of hair and still be a fool. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with logic. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. There's nothing wrong with high grades and uh, fine education. There is nothing wrong with gray hair. But that's not enough if it's not transforming our lives. And the word there in James 3.13, that let him show by his good behavior. Maybe your translation says his good conduct. I don't know if that fully captures the riches there. The word, it's the same root word that we get for our word today, calligraphy. It's this idea of, of actions, behaviors, conduct that has a certain appeal to it. It's a life that is attractive. It's a life that is winsome. It's a life that is compelling. You see, what James said in James chapter 2 was, if you have faith, let me see your faith by your works. And what he says here in chapter 3 is that if you have wisdom, then let me see wisdom by your behavior. And so he asked the question, who among you is wise and understanding? I'm assuming that then the, the answer that he's going to give, what he's gonna, what's going to come next is this list of imperatives, these things, these commands that we have to do in order to be wise. And that's not, that's not what James writes. I'm expecting a list, and yet James simply says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness, perhaps your translation says meekness of wisdom. Commentator J. Alec Motier says, James doesn't offer us an ethic of imperatives that we are to live by, but simply says, let everything that we do be done in gentleness and meekness of wisdom. You see, that same Greek culture that loved knowledge and rhetoric and speech, and it despised humility. Humility was the posture of someone who was uh, good for nothing. And even in our day, gentleness and meekness are not highly held virtues in large because I think we've confused gentleness and meekness with weakness and mousy, if that's even a word. Gentleness and meekness flows from humility before a holy God. See, someone who's gentle and someone who's meek, they don't have to insist on being great before other people. Because there's a security of there in them of where greatness has come from. And they're able to rest, not in their work, not in their resume, not in their abilities, nor do they have to promote it. No, a gentle person is able to rest 
a meek person, right? Power under control, not absence of power. Power under control. They're able to rest in the fact that they have received something from someone. They don't have to prove anything else. Gentleness and meekness flows from humility. And humility, rightly understood, is assessing ourselves before a holy God. Humility is not about how you look compared to someone else. It's about who you are compared to a holy God. And that rightly puts every single one of us in our place. And if we're convinced of that, then the heart posture, the way we interact with one another, it's marked not by demanding boisterous, boastful disposition, but a gentleness. And so the question at the outset this morning is, who among us is wise? Who among us has understanding? And James answers, it's the one who is humbled before God and lives all of his life doesn't compartmentalize his life and live certain aspects sort of in gentleness, but not all. No, lives all of life in reality, in gentle and meek ways. And so I wonder this morning, are you wise as God counts wisdom? Can you say you're wise? Having engaged our minds to consider where we may fall in answering this question, James continues, and it brings us to our second point. Point number two, beware of false wisdom. Beware of false wisdom. We see this in verses 14 through 16. Listen again to the word of the Lord. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. You see, there's another wisdom that James identifies, but it couldn't be any further removed from what true heavenly wisdom is. And here's the thing. What makes this false wisdom so deadly is that our world holds it up as true wisdom. And before we know it, perhaps we've sort of slid over into or begin to have adopted certain features of this worldly wisdom all the while realizing or not realizing and coming to the end of our lives realizing that we, what we thought was wise was in fact fools, foolish. You see, James wants us to learn that the adjectives are just as important as the noun when it comes to wisdom. Right, I was thinking about this. If I went to the grocery store and I saw you could buy, uh, I didn't think too hard about this. You could buy uh, organic lettuce or you could buy deadly lettuce. I don't buy deadly lettuce and come home and say, hey guys, I got lettuce. Why? Because the adjective is important because it's describing the lettuce. And in the same way this morning, it's helpful for us not to just say, yes, I'm wise. 
James wants us to, to be aware that there is a wisdom that the world says is wise that in fact is deadly. It's not wisdom. And that's, that's helpful for us to be reminded of that. All of us would love to be counted as wise. And James is writing to wake his original audience up and by extension to wake us up this morning to say that not all who claim to be wise are really wise. And not everything that the world says is wisdom is truly wisdom. And this is where James is going to begin to get surgical. Because he begins to help us identify what are distinguishing marks of this false, deadly wisdom. And it's as if he's anticipated a few yes responses to his question in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? It's as if someone would have said yes. And then James says in verse 14, but, okay, you have your profession, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, then don't be arrogant and don't claim to be wise because you're lying against the truth. Don't deceive yourselves. And thinking that you are wise according to God if bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are in your heart. A man's character can contradict his claim to true wisdom. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And this is not a microscope that I want to sit under for a long time. And yet, by God's grace, it's been a microscope that I have been able to sit under this week and in many ways been exposed. Both of these traits, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, are rooted so deeply in self-centeredness. Bitter jealousy is anger at what others have. And it can manifest itself in so many ways. Here are a few. A desire to be promoted. A desire to be recognized. Demanding that the good in other people's lives would also be the good for my life. Envying the successes of others. Taking pleasure in the failures of others. Bitter jealousy. I wonder... How much of this is happening even in your own heart and in your own life? And it has a soulmate. The soulmate of bitter jealousy is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is placing your desires and your goals and your dreams before others. Selfish ambition will use whatever means necessary to advance my causes, my interests, my desires. I mean, it pains me to consider the epitaph on my life. We just wrote this out this week of just saying, pains me to consider that this could be said about me. Yeah, he did a number of things in the ministry that the Lord allowed him to do. But he's no example of wisdom. Because what drove him to do the things that he did was bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Replace ministry there. And what is that for you? Yeah, 
He did a number of things in his career with his possessions. Yeah, she did a number of things with her parenting, with her relationships. But at the end, not an example of true wisdom. Because what was driving all of it was bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He worked hard to preach well, but it wasn't, it wasn't pure motives because he wanted people to be impressed with him. Yeah, she spent a lot of time looking around and envying the successes of the people around her. Yeah, he cares for people, uh, but that care is driven not out of a concern for another, but out of having a perception from others. This week, I've just wanted to go into my times with the Lord and just beg God, whatever it takes, kill any bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in my heart. If you find yourself regularly praying for your church family or for your pastors, I would beg you to pray that for us. Kill any semblance of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in his heart. You see, these sins, that's where they find their origins, in our hearts. They emerge from within. And too often when we feel them, what we begin to do, we quickly point to circumstances and we place the blame on the circumstances. This is, not, is this not exactly what happened in Genesis 3? I mean, there are certain even just phrases that we use and that we overhear often in conversations. Well, I'm sorry that, you, I'm sorry that I did that, but you have to understand this is what you did that led to that. You need to know that, that I've been struggling with this, so I had to do it. Putting the accent mark over the circumstance that made it difficult and not over the fact that our hearts are bent. It's what James says in James chapter 1, verse 14. Sin emerges not from the landscape of our circumstances, but from our desires within. And the circumstances oftentimes then only reveal what's been happening in our hearts. And if, you, if you're thinking to yourself, ah, I would love to dig in a little bit there, just kind of what's happening in my heart compared to my circumstances, I would invite you to come back or tune in next week. James chapter four is all about that. And even in the midst of great trials and difficulties, God promises grace is available. He's writing to people who are scattered and who are persecuted and who it would have been really, really easy for them to have been jealous about maybe the treatment other people were experiencing or have ambition where they wanted to sort of prove themselves and get out from under the persecution. And James is writing to say, listen, there is a grace that's available to you even in your difficult circumstance. Even in difficult circumstances, we can walk in humility and we can evidence and show good works. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is everywhere in our day. 
And yet what we fail to realize is that when we envy, what we're doing is crying foul against God because we think he's done us wrong. When I see the success of someone else, and I so want that, I begin to just say, God, you are not right because you didn't give me that. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy are shameful things. And when our lives are marked by these two deadly soulmates and we profess to be wise, we are lying against the truth. We're lying against the truth of the message, the the greatest message in all of this world. We're lying against the truth of the gospel that tells us that there was one who left the glory of heaven. There was one who left the, the prestige of heaven with his father. He laid it all down and he took upon himself servanthood in great humility to come to live a life that was perfect in every way. And to die a death on a cross bearing our sins of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And so when we profess to be wise and yet our hearts are just gripped with these vices, we are lying against that gospel message. And James makes clear that that is not wisdom that's from above. It's actually a false wisdom. It doesn't originate in heaven. In fact, it has evil origins. And James helps us by understanding those evil origins. You see, what we long for is the wisdom that we were encouraged to ask for in James chapter 1, verse 5. And we were reminded where that kind of wisdom comes from in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. But the wisdom that the world says is, is wisdom, James says, is not wisdom. In fact, verse 15, James says that it's, it doesn't come from above, it's earthly. Meaning that there's not, a per, there's not a consideration of God in this wisdom. Not only is it earthly, it's also temporal. Like I just wonder, the, do you know what the wise person thinks through when they're making decisions? Not what's gonna make me most satisfied today, not even what's gonna make me most happy tomorrow. The truly wise person thinks, what's gonna make me happy in 10,000 years? This wisdom that the world says, ah, this is the virtue of wisdom. James says, no, 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 that is not from above. It doesn't have that perspective. It's contained to just what it can see, what it can touch, what it can feel. It doesn't consider God and it's only temporary. But it's not just earthly, it's natural. Your translation may say it's unspiritual. It's lacking Holy Spirit power. It's not understanding who God is and seeing God's right place in this. Not only is it earthly and natural, James then says it's demonic. It's based on lies that are rooted in our flesh. It's based on the lie. This kind of earthly wisdom is the kind of wisdom that says, ah, do you know what, my ways they're probably better than God's. That's the heart posture of the demons. 
James has already told us the demons are good theologians. They are terrible repenters. In fact, they don't bow their knee in light of the knowledge that they have. Go back to the garden. Genesis chapter 3. Satan tempting Eve in the garden. And do you know what he tempts her with? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Satan offered Eve a wisdom without God. And if you are not a Christian this morning, I just want you to know, wisdom as you understand it could be characterized with that same tagline. Wisdom without God. And James wants to make clear the origins of these, they're they're evil origins, they reside in the heart, but they don't stay in the heart. No, they find their way out and they find their way into our lives and into our communities and it begins to wreak havoc. You don't believe me? Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Every evil thing. Not only, not only is this wisdom not biblically wise, it's also extremely dangerous. Paul uses this word there uh, for disorder. There's disorder in every evil thing. He uses this word a couple of times. uh, Writing to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 14. People are showing up and they're not considering one another. And how they take the supper and how they gather together. They're insisting on themselves being first. And and James uh, and Paul characterizes that as disorder. It was this fabric of jealousy and selfish ambition. And here's the deal. I understand because I know my heart. I know that bitter jealousy, selfish ambition is evident in our church family in subtle, small ways. And I hope we as a church family will not be content to allow even a hint of it to be found in our lives. But I am also aware as I hear of other churches and I read about even 1 Corinthians, I see how bitter jealousy and selfish ambition can so ruin a people. This week, I found myself thanking God that this is not prevalent. I praise God that we are a church where this, this isn't the prevailing culture, that there's not bitter jealousy that's running rampant in our church. There's not selfish ambition that's, that's providing grievous sin that people are just, kind of turned away from, they're repulsed by. I'm so thankful to that and then uh, to God for that. And I'm, but I think that's where I'm extremely cautious is that because there aren't those public grievous kind of extremes of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, my fear is that we begin to become comfortable with these vices. That the presence 
of peace in our midst would be noticeable to everyone else. And he says, not only is disorder, but every vile thing, every vile, evil thing. Let's just be clear. There is no end to the destruction that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition desire to bring to the people of God. And so this morning, Christian brother and sister, where do you see traces of these sin, these sins in your own heart? Allow the Spirit, the space, to show you where you are potentially housing a church-dividing, God-dishonoring attitude. And you say, well, I'm nowhere close to that. That's where all big sins began. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are typically very hard to see in ourselves, but we can find it through our reactions to the blessings that other people have or to the misfortunes that other people have. I mean, I found myself this week even just thinking about misfortunes and uh, small little, not, not church ruining type um, issues, but small little issues that I know about in other churches. Just allowing the Spirit to search my heart and just going, why is there any remote, even a hint of satisfaction in the fact that it's not our church who's doing that? Like, why in the world would I go, yeah, if our church was, was there, that wouldn't happen to us. Like why, is that, why is there this kind of subtle ambition and maybe even perverse jealousy to see the other church suffer just a little bit and to think, yeah, if that was us, that wouldn't have happened. Or what happens when we receive the wedding invitation? And for a moment, it's not just we're saddened by the state of our marriage or by our singleness, but for a moment, we almost say, I don't even want to rejoice with this person. James says that's demonic. What happens when we receive the birth announcement? And for a moment, we're not even able to rejoice or if we're honest, we begin to think, they are not even as deserving as me. James says that type of bitter jealousy that those moments provide you glimpses into, it's dangerous. Or to see someone else get the promotion. Or to see someone else get accepted into the school. Or to see someone else make partner. Or to see another person removed from partner. Or to see another person removed from the promotion. Or to see someone else passed over and not get the promotion. Do you take pleasure in those things? James says that Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition have no place in the life of a Christian. And I want to be clear because I know some of my examples were particularly um, 
sensitive. And I want to be clear that there is a space for grieving. There is a space for longing. There is a space for lamenting. But I'm just asking, do you find traces within your heart where you go beyond the God-given responses of lamenting and grieving and being sad, and you go into the areas of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? And if you find yourself guilty, I just want to remind you, if you are in Christ, Christ has saved you from the guilt of those sins. You don't have to carry it. That's why he bore the cross, and that's why he bore your sin. And the good news is that he also, by his Holy Spirit, desires to transform us. Which means that in hearing this, if you're convicted, don't bristle against the conviction. He wants us to grow in wisdom. James is pastoring us this morning, calling us to repent where it's needed. And so brothers and sisters, don't turn a blind, don't turn a blind eye to places where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition perhaps are, are being housed in your own heart. And don't fall for the lie that they're only here for the weekend because they always outstay their welcome. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to remind you what James chapter 3, 13 through 18 should be compelling you to see is that you have a, a deadly preoccupation with yourself. You have and you are pursuing a wisdom without God. And this wisdom always keeps self at the center and it always leads to disaster. And the Bible says that what we've done with the truth is we've exchanged it for a lie. We've taken the truth that God is for God and that he alone is to be praised and worshiped and we've exchanged that to say, no, no, God really is for me and I get to call the shots on how I live. And every time you ignore him, and every time you live life the way you want to live it, and every time you live it apart from him, the Bible calls that sin. And you are sinning against an infinitely holy and good God. And James reminded us that when we are guilty of breaking even one of those pieces of the law, we're guilty of breaking it all. You say, that doesn't sound like much of a problem. It sounds like I just do some bad things every now and then. Well, it's a problem when you understand what you were created for. And you were created to be with God. And you were created to know God. And you were created to have relationship with God. And your sin keeps you from doing that. The very thing you were created for, you can't do because of your sin. And not only does that keep you from doing what you were created for, it separates you from him. And not only are you separated from him, but you also were under his wrath for that sin because he's a holy judge. And not only are you under his wrath, but you will be forever in a place of eternal torment separated from this God. And try as you may, there's not enough wisdom found in the world that can get you out of that problem. But God... But God, who would do the unthinkable and would shame the wise by using a message that seems to be foolish, 
He would send his son to bear our punishment for bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And the life that the son lived would earn righteousness that would cleanse our record. And Jesus expired on the cross, died, crushed under the weight of the father's wrath. And he was raised then on the third day to ensure and to prove that that work was sufficient. And James is writing us to say, false wisdom is deadly and true wisdom is available in Christ. Non-Christian friend, I would call you, I would plead with you, I would beg you, turn. Turn from living life that you think is wise and find and know true wisdom by submitting to the only wise and true God. Patterns of sin that emerge in your life, in your home, in the church, they don't start with those sins, but, in, but oftentimes in the hidden sins of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And that leads us to number three. Embracing true wisdom or embrace true wisdom. Embrace true wisdom. James not only lets us see and warns us about false wisdom, he calls us to know and to embrace true wisdom. There's a wisdom that's God-focused and brings God's blessing. And verses 17 and 18 are such a contrast from the previous verses. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This wisdom is from above. It's not from below. God is above and we are below. True wisdom comes, Proverbs 9.10. Fear the Lord, beginning of wisdom. True wisdom comes from being properly related to the living God. And only when we see him rightly can we properly relate to him. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you cannot know God at all. For as long as you are proud, you can't know God. Because proud men and women always look down on things. And as long as you're looking down, you can't see the one who is up above. James then proceeds to give us seven characteristics of pure, true wisdom. Just, I want you to see them in the verses. He says that true wisdom is pure. That means it's un, uncontaminated. It's blameless. It's not self-focused. It's marked by this moral holiness. It doesn't involve itself in immorality. It's pure. And it's not put, pure isn't just sort of a, a haphazard first. No, it sort of sets the tone for everything that follows. Second, it's peaceable. A peacemaker is truly wise. He's not seeking to stir up dissension, but to disarm dissenters. He's not passive in pursuing peace. He's even willing to be confrontational. It's peaceable. True wisdom doesn't spread the fires of gossip or harsh words. Third, true wisdom is gentle. It's marked by humility and patience. It doesn't insist on its own way. 
And this isn't describing someone who's soft, but this is describing someone who has power under control. Fourth, it's reasonable. It's open to reason. It's ready to listen. It, and if needed, it is willing to be persuaded. It's the opposite of obstinate, stubborn, trenched in your ways. When you tell a truly wise person a story, they don't begin by saying, oh, no, no, that's not true. And then proceeding to tell you what they believe to be true, they're open to being taught. They're not merely looking for any little wrongs and ready to pounce on it. It doesn't mean that they're gullible. It doesn't mean that they don't take a stand for the truth. But they're open to reason. Part of being Christian is learning to say, I'm sorry. Learning to say, I was wrong and you were right. Do you forgive me? That's a mark of a wise person. Fifth, true wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. This would be the opposite of the man in chapter two who told the one who had need, go and be filled. Having received much mercy, this person who's marked with true wisdom is ready to extend much mercy. Number six, true wisdom is unwavering. True wisdom isn't hot one day and cold the next. It doesn't try to be evil one day and wise the next. No, it's marked by consistency. And number seven, true wisdom is without hypocrisy. Who you see on the outside is who they are on the inside. And who they are on the inside is who they are on the outside. And James wraps up this section in verse 18 by saying, those who lead truly wise lives, those who are truly wise and live this way, they produce an atmosphere where works of godliness and conduct grow and flourish. When we live lives like this, James, we have the promise of James, the word of God to tell us that our lives will then give birth to a harvest of fruitfulness the legacy of those who bring peace rather than conflict is a harvest of righteousness. And that's what James wants us to, to leave with, is that this, this picture of a life that's attractive and compelling and wise, everybody wants this. And so how do we get it? The culture says you get it by putting man at the center. The Bible says, no, 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 you get this type of life that's attractive, compelling, and wise when God is at the center. And James isn't calling us to just staple virtues on our lives, to go through lists and sort of show us what we need to do and see how far we fall and how much we need help. No, only when we come to the place where we realize, I can't do this in and of myself, are we then in the place where we're now ready to be able, by the Spirit's power, to live like this. And the good news of the gospel, amidst all disorder and every vile and evil practice, God declares, I love you, and I'm coming for you. I have come for you. I, I forgive you. I desire to adopt you, to make you mine. You see, the reality is true wisdom is not found in man. Contrary to what Will Smith said, and contrary to what our world says, the pursuit of happiness, it doesn't lead to happiness. 
you'll never find yourself by looking for yourself. There's no amount of success that can fulfill you and no amount of money can save you. And you are not the sum total of what has happened to you already in your life. And you're not the measure of what's true. No, no matter what our world says, we all need help and we all are in need of a living relationship with the all-wise Lord of all. And as we receive his love and we respond to his ways and we walk with him, we are befriending wisdom. You wanna know how to be wise? Be near to our Lord. Cling to him. He forgives, adopts, fills us with his spirit, will never let us go, gives us a new identity, a new family, a new hope. He shapes how we live. You see, when wisdom takes residence within us, it changes everything about us. The Holy Spirit reworks us from the inside out, primarily through his scriptures and then his people. We grow wise not because of what we know, but because of who we know. And so do you know this all-wise, good God? Have you given your life to him? Do you enjoy him? One commentator said, nothing is known until it reshapes our lives. And so for this reason, it's safe to say that the way of wisdom is the way of God-honoring obedience. And so... James began with a question for his audience. We end with the same question for us. And the Lord asked of us this morning, who is wise and has understanding among us? Let's pray. God, as your word has gone forth, I pray that what has been helpful will be remembered. What is not helpful will be forgotten. Holy Spirit, show us how we lay hold of wisdom. May it begin with repentance. And so in this moment of silence, would you remind us of what we need to turn away from? Would you show us how bitter jealousy and selfish ambition perhaps are hanging around a little too long. Would you help us walk away? And would you also help us not merely know what we need to turn from, but also who to turn to? And may the marks of James 3, 17, may those marks of wisdom, may it mark every member of our church. And so grow us. We need your help. Speak to us now in this moment of silence in Jesus' name.